In the prologue of his new book, Repicturing the Restoration, author Anthony Sweat writes, We have primarily shown the same church history images over and over. The first vision, Joseph with Moroni, Joseph and Oliver with John the Baptist or Peter, James and John, and images of pioneers. It is for good reason that these scenes are repeatedly painted, since they are central to our founding restoration narrative. But important and instructive Latter-day saint history is often more diverse than these handful of events. As I have taught about church history, seeking to help learners develop a broad, deep, historically informed, and doctrinally mature faith, I have longed for paintings to visually accompany these types of discussions." So Anthony Sweat set out to paint some of these events from church history, but he didn't want to just put them in a nice art book. He wanted the book to serve as a launching pad to learn, evaluate, apply, and discuss important aspects of Latter-day Saint history and doctrine. That is also the goal of our conversation today. Dr. Anthony Sweat is an associate professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University. He is also a practicing artist, receiving his bachelor's degree from the University of Utah before going on to earn his PhD in education from Utah State University. Anthony is the author of numerous best-selling books and is a regular speaker at Latter-day Saint events and conferences. He and his wife, Cindy, are the parents of seven children. This is All In, an LDS Living podcast where we ask the question, what does it really mean to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm Morgan Jones, and I am honored to have Anthony Sweat on the line with me today. Anthony, welcome. I am so honored to be with Morgan Jones. I feel like I'm with a rock star right now. I'm so excited to be on this podcast with you. It's so ridiculous. We're going to have him stop right now with that kind of talk. (laughs) That cannot be edited out of this podcast. It actually could be, but maybe we'll leave it in there. So I have been so excited about this conversation. I was telling my mom this morning all about your new book, Repicturing the Restoration. And I am so excited about it because I think that it is... I think that the text at the beginning of the book is so powerful. And then the images as you work your way through the book, it just kind of the the restoration and church history starts to come to life and in a way that it hasn't before. And that's kind of the way that you set it up in the very beginning. And so before we get into that, though, first, I have two questions for you. Okay. How did you first become interested in art? And how did you become such a good artist? That's a little <laughs> sub question. And then secondly, when did you become super interested in church history? Yeah, that's a great question because this book is kind of bringing all of my passions together in life, you know, as a as a teacher of church history and doctrine, as a writer, as a speaker, and as a painter. I'm 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 excited that you're excited about this book because this is kind of like my all the things I love coming together in one book and uh, I have been interested in art from the time I was a little kid. I drew thousands and thousands of pictures of Michael Jordan growing up. Uh, I, the goat. The goat, yes. Well, all the LeBron people out there will want to argue that. Uh, but and, and they can come at me. That's right. I'm willing that's to right. debate it. <laughs> uh, and I, you know, I just always loved drawing. I would seriously sit in sacrament meeting and 
people thought I was this attentive listener as a kid, but really all I was doing was drawing pictures of the person who was speaking and just kept drawing all through junior high and high school. And then I went on to major when I had to choose a major for my undergraduate degree. I went to the University of Utah and thought, you know, I love this. I'm okay at it. I want to develop it. And so that's my, my bachelor's degree is in painting and drawing. My original plans were to be a full-time artist. And I, I joke that God saved me from a life of poverty and led me into the big money of religious education instead. <laughs> but I also, to answer your second question, I have always just been drawn also to Joseph Smith and church history. I've always had a deep admiration for those who are part of the founding events of the church and the founding actions of it. And that really developed when I went on my mission, I just devoured every book I could about church history, Joseph Smith. And that kind of has always informed as I went on to get into my full-time career as a religious educator, I always just kind of honed in on church history, church doctrine. And so, you know, these worlds have kind of naturally come together always for me. Yeah. So I love that you said that this book is combining all of your passions. My passions combined in a book would not be nearly as exciting. <laughs> but I love how you t- you start out the book and you talk about the role that art plays in our understanding or our perception of religion or of Christianity. Talk about the role that Christianity or the role that art played in Christianity from hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Yeah. But then you say from 1830 So that's when the church was organized. To 1900, there were fewer than three dozen images dealing with church history or doctrine published in tens of thousands of pages of church periodicals. The first painting of the first vision was not printed by the institutional church until 1912. Those born after the turn of the century are the first Latter-day Saints who have been raised on an abundant visual church curriculum. And that kind of blew my mind a little bit. because. I have been born into that. And so to me, like, of course, we have artistic portrayals of these things. But how has art contributed to our understanding of our religion as Latter-day Saints? Yeah, Morgan, that's such a great question. I want every listener to understand and grasp because we are surrounded by images today in the church. The church very effectively uses art and uses imagery and film. But uh, as I wrote there, we're the first generations to really have that. If I could put it this way, our church was kind of slow on the uptake of uh, using visual imagery. There were obviously Catholicism and uh, other early forms of Christianity have used visual imagery heavily. But it wasn't until the turn of the century that our church kind of started saying, "We we, we should show some pictures of this. And there's lots of reasons for that. I won't get into all of that right now. But I think what is important to grasp is, you know, if you're alive today, you're one of, you are, you are part of the first generations of saints that have had visual images to grasp that. But then to also understand then that really our canon of visual imagery is fairly new. It's only a few generations old. And so we're just still scratching the surface of the visual institutional imagery that we can use to help people grasp the restoration. That's an important yeah. idea to also understand. Yeah. Well, and I think I think part of it probably is that we sometimes I think in the church we get afraid of getting it wrong. And so it's like 
oh, well, I don't, I don't know. I wasn't there in the grove with Joseph. So how would I portray that? And I think that gets, that gets tricky. But I think having a wide range of portrayals of that gives us the ability to connect with whichever one we feel the spirit when we look at. Yeah, totally. And that's one of the beauties of having a lot of imagery is we don't start to say, oh, that's the way that it happened or that's the look that it has to have, Uh, which is why we need more and more art from more and more people of more and more subjects, which is part of what this book's trying to do. Yeah. So... Uh, one thing that you talk about, and and I loved this, you, you said, when you picture Abinadi, what do you picture? And then you said, if you picture a super ripped older man, then you've likely seen Arnold Freeberg's painting. Yeah. And that's why that is what comes to your mind. So how does whether a story has been portrayed artistically or how a story has been portrayed artistically affect our knowledge of particular stories from the scriptures or from church history. Yeah, that's it's it's the beauty of art and the drawback of art. Like the moment you mentioned Abinadi, most listeners can you automatically pictured a shirtless man. You can't help it. And uh, none of you pictured like uh, a soft doughy-faced 20-year-old. And King Noah is automatically slightly large sitting on a throne and if I even said to you, you know what what pets does he have? Uh, you would say leopards. Uh, how many? Two of them on both sides of the throne, right? <laughs> um, and that's because Arnold Freeberg created such a masterful image of that. And then the church has used it in all of our missionary copies of the Book of Mormon, right. printed millions of times. So we, that the power of that is now we all know that story. That's the power of art. The drawback of it, though, is that is how we picture the story. And that is not necessarily how the scriptures itself, you know, the scriptures don't tell us anything about Abinadi's age. They don't tell us anything about King Noah's pets or his weight. You know, same with if if I said to most listeners, fill in the blank, you know, in the millennium, the blank will dwell with the lamb. Almost every listener will say the lion will dwell with the lamb. But that's... Yeah, that's what I would have said. That's not what the scriptures say. And not that it matters, but this is just a point. It, It says the wolf will dwell with the lamb. But we have all those paintings hanging above, you know, flowered sofas in every church foyer of a lion and a lamb together. Or we sing our hymn, the Spirit of God, how blessed the day when the lamb and the lion. So art gets things into our mind. That's the power of it. But sometimes we translate art as literal scripture, literal doctrine, literal history. And it's not always meant to be. And it can limit our understanding of things also. Just as one example you know, if I say picture the first vision, well, the first vision has been painted a ton. It's one of the most off-painted images of the restoration. But I kicked off this book with a different take of the first vision. Because normally we picture the first vision, two beings standing above Joseph. But the sources actually say that one being appeared. And then shortly thereafter, another one appeared. It wasn't a side-by-side appearance. The sources themselves say that Joseph also saw many angels in the grove. And we don't have a lot of images showing that. The sources say, I saw a pillar of fire. Fire is work. But we don't often depict fire. So sometimes if we only rely on images, it can limit our understanding. So the very first painting in this book is me repicturing the first vision, showing fire. The father and the son aren't standing next to each other. The grove is filled with many angels. So. 
that's the power and the drawback of art right there. Yeah. So when it comes to this project, and and you just already kind of introduced us into the first painting, but you go on to represent many moments in church history, significant moments, but many of them things that we aren't familiar with because we haven't seen them portrayed artistically. Why is having these different parts of our history represented in art important? Because I would say to that, art is a launch pad for understanding. Art launches us into questions. You know, art isn't always meant to to give answers. One of the beauties of art is art causes us to to think and to ponder and to wonder. And there's a power, there's a reason why we say a picture is worth a thousand words. Because the moment you put an image in front of somebody, it can happen to things that words cannot and uh, that that uh, these images can. And so, the reason why I think this is so important and why I'm so excited for this project and this book, and I hope others are too, is because when we have images that we haven't painted before, images like faithful women performing a healing blessing, a Relief Society healing, women did that for a hundred years in our church. Well, that opens up a whole new way to think about God's power and the gifts of the Spirit and ministry. It opens up great discussions um, and understanding. Or when we look at images of like Q. Walker Lewis, a black man who was ordained to the priesthood in the 1840s. Well, a lot of people don't know that black men were ordained to priesthood offices. Prior to 1978, right? We're like, what? Yeah, a lot of people think that that they never were ordained, but that so that opens a whole new discussion. And well, then why were they? And who was this man? And what did he do? And when did it start? And why did it happen? And why did it go away? And so, the reason why I think it's so important to have images like this is because it helps us broaden our understanding of history, church history, and it helps us broaden our understanding of church doctrine. And it does what art can do best, which is launches us into better analysis and thinking and discussion. Yeah. So one thing that I find fascinating about this project, and we've already talked about how it combines your two passions, but I feel like your two passions are a little bit of an anomaly. So you are an academic but you also are an artist and a creative. And there's this quote you say in the book, and I shouldn't say a quote, you wrote it, I think, says, history wants facts, art wants meaning, history wants to validate sources, art wants to evoke emotion. History is more substance, art is more style. History wants accuracy, art wants aesthetics. The two disciplines often love and hate one another as they strive to serve their two masters. I think this quote has a lot to unpack, but (laughs) how would you explain what you mean by this? Well, what I mean by that is um, being an academic and an artist is a little bit like being a professional race car driver and a policeman. You know, they, 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 they need each other. Art needs history to paint meaningful images. And history also needs art to help people learn history. But the goals of the two disciplines often pull in different directions. I, you know, I talk to my artist friends often and they'll just be like, oh, historians just need to lay off and quit, quit wanting us to, to be 
perfectly historically accurate because by the way it's impossible to be perfectly historically accurate first of all and then secondly artists that's not their goal it's it's lower on their priority list sometimes art is trying to provoke it's trying to inspire it's trying to express you know art is its best when it causes this kind of introspection and and reflection like think of Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel and God touching the finger of Adam. What a beautiful image. Now, that's not historically accurate, but man, I'm so glad he painted it that way. And so sometimes artists are like, well, leave me alone. Let me just express and let art do what art does and leave facts and history to the historians. But then the problem is the historians say, yeah, but your art changes history. It, when people consume the art, they start to assume, and maybe that's on us as, as viewers, we need to be better at being visually literate and not always consuming art as historical fact. And so historians say, I just wish artists would be more historically accurate. So there's a tension there, always a tension. And in this project, I'm trying to bridge those two. I'm trying to use history and use research to inform my images but I'm not leaving myself bound to be 100% perfectly historically accurate because that's impossible. So that's what I'm trying to get at with that quote. Well, and I think, I think you touch on something very important. And I think this is true of the way that we consume pretty much anything. Everything, yeah. That, that there is a responsibility with the consumer of whatever it is, art, television, a podcast. There's a responsibility within the person receiving it to think about, you know, how do I feel about that? What is, maybe do a little bit of research on your own, see what is historically accurate. I am kind of a nutcase when it comes to movies if it's based on a true story, I always check afterward and I'm like, okay, what was true in that and what yeah. was not? The bad news is that this can really ruin a movie. So I just <laughs> will give that disclosure. But I do think it's important because, I mean, you have, well, I'm not going to ruin, I'm not going to ruin a movie that a lot of these people probably love. But another thing that you talk about in the book is you talk about something that you call source amnesia. Yeah. And you give an example of yet another painting that I think people will immediately be able to visualize in their minds. Oh, I my already dad know where you're going. People are going to get mad my, when they hear this one. They probably are going to get mad. My dad has it hanging in his office at work. So if you could share what this concept of source amnesia is, and then maybe share a little bit about the example of Washington's prayer at Valley Forge. Yeah. Thanks for setting me up to get a bunch of people who uh, <laughs> who are passionate, uh, mad at me, Morgan. I appreciate that. I'm, uh, listen, I'm not trying to make enemies for I'm you, but you. no, it's a it's an important uh, it's it's a good example of it. And you know, source amnesia. I use that phrase. It's from uh, my friend and fellow colleague Stephen Harper, a great historian, who says we learn things, but we often can't track down where we learn them from. And visual imagery is a great source of learning, but we confuse it. So if I said to every listener right now, I want you to picture the prayer at Newburgh, that means absolutely nothing to you. The, the yeah, prayer at I Newburgh, got you got nothing. But if I said picture the prayer at Valley Forge, it, it, automatically you can picture, you can even do the pose on one knee, you know? Yeah. And that's because, basically the Heisman. 
Yeah, it's basically the George Washington's Heisman pose. The reason why is because there have been so, not just Arnold Freeberg's painting of it, which he did. It's one of the most oft reproduced prints in American history, but there have been paintings of the Parrot Valley Forge for, you know, a hundred years or more. The problem is, is there are no credible sources for the prayer at Valley Forge. It was likely a story made up after Washington's death to kind of valorize him and, and show that God was involved in the founding of the American nation and that Washington was a religious man. That's why we love the image. And let me just say, that's why the image is powerful. Back to what art does. It speaks to those ideals for us. And so I'm not negating that, but like, you know, the, the 1918 uh, Valley Forge Commission, for example, they rejected a sculpture being placed at Valley Forge because in pouring through every letter, every diary, every historical correspondence that happened during the time at Valley Forge, there is not one single source to substantiate the, the tradition of Washington's prayer at Valley Forge. So, I mean, and if I said to you, where did you learn about the prayer at Valley Forge from? It's likely that you can't pin it down. Um, no. And it's likely through the imagery. So that's just an example of, of source amnesia. And again, I'm not undermining your love for the American nation. I'm not saying Washington wasn't a religious man and that God wasn't involved in the American nation. I'm just saying that's a great example where we learn things, but we don't quite know where we learn them from. And none of us have really checked the sources on that. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So one thing that people should know as they begin to dive into this book is that you, you present an image, a painting that you've done, and then you break it down into different sections. So there's a section that's called a background, which gives the history of the image, and then an image, which gives artistic insights into the painting that you yeah. created. And then an application, which talks about how the image can inform our faith. And finally, you have an analysis, which gives some discussion questions for further further exploration into the painting. So I wondered if we could go through the first couple of these, the background and the image, and maybe you could share with us just to give people an idea of kind of what to expect, sure. um, a favorite painting that applies to this. So first, background. Which painting in the book has your favorite historical background? And can you tell us a little bit about it? That is a great question. Probably my... My favorite one would have to be the first baptism for the dead with a woman named Jane Nyman. Now, think of baptisms for the dead, work for the dead. That's a huge thing in the Restoration. And yet, most people don't know when or how baptisms for the dead started. So, I did a painting called The First Baptism for the Dead, and it shows a woman named Jane Nyman being baptized in the Mississippi River by a man named Harvey Olmsted. And the witness is a woman named Vienna Jakes, who rode into the river on horseback to observe and witness the baptism. So, number one, cool foundational story that's never been visually depicted. I mean, uh, a woman on horseback in a river, as someone gets baptized, how could it be cooler than that? But number two, the great thing about the story is the, the woman was baptized for her son. So, it's a woman being baptized for a man. It's happening in a river, not in a temple. The elder made up the prayer on the spot. There was no set prayer. And the witness was a woman on horseback. 
And when Joseph Smith heard that that uh, likely first baptism for the dead had been done, he asked how it was done. And when he heard, he basically said, that counts. And to me, it's just a cool example that God accepts of our righteous efforts, even in our imperfections, and and that that our history like can inform us of of things like that. And so, for example, too, when the church recently just changed their policy to allow women in the temple to act as witnesses for ordinances, my first thought was, well, we've been doing that from the very beginning. That's actually nothing new if you know our history, which is why images like this matter. That they help us understand things more broadly. So that's just one story of one cool church history story with a great background behind it. That's super cool. So I have a question. Yeah. So then from there, did Joseph seek revelation on baptism for the dead or how did that evolve? Yeah. See, so this is a great, see what you're doing right now, Morgan. This is the point of the book is it's to get you to start thinking of questions like that. Like, whoa, I didn't know that's how it started. So then how did it evolve into what we have today? And what we see is that, like a lot of practices in the church, God didn't deliver the thing perfectly packaged, wrapped up in a in a bow. Things developed line upon line. It took a few years before Joseph started to say, no, we need to record these. We need to say the prayer the same way. They need to be done in the temple when it's done, not in a river. It wasn't until Brigham Young that Brigham starts saying, we should have men be baptized for men and women be baptized for women to keep it gender specific. So line upon line, those things slowly started to develop. Fascinating. So interesting. So interesting. Okay. So then artistically as an artist, somebody that loves a good visual, which painting is your favorite and why? I would say one of my favorites is called the voice of God in the chamber of father Whitmer. And again, another really important story, uh, uh, if I could give a 20-second background of it. In section 128 of the Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph Smith starts to list all these angelic messengers who have delivered priesthood to him, so to speak. He talks about Peter, James, John, and John the Baptist, and Moroni coming. And then he starts, and then he, right after Peter, James, and John, he says, and the voice of God in the chamber of Father Whitmer. And most of us as Latter-day Saints just read that and we're like, oh, don't know that story. Moving on. Yeah. But Joseph actually explains in his history that what he and Oliver Cadre were praying for was the authorization to confer the gift of the Holy Ghost upon each other. That's what they were praying for in the chamber of Father Whitmer and that God spoke to them and gave them directions on how to confer the gift of the Holy Ghost. I mean... Talk about a huge seminal moment. I even had a missionary one time say to me, they they wrote me an email and said, okay, we know that uh, after John the Baptist came, that Joseph and Oliver went and baptized each other. After Peter, James, and John came, when did Joseph and Oliver give each other the Holy Ghost? And this elder, you could tell he was like, "Ah, I've never heard that. And so I wrote him back and said, well, it seems like it's related to God speaking to them in the chamber or the bedroom of Peter Whitmer at the Peter Whitmer home when Joseph was staying there, finishing the translation of the Book of Mormon. So, A, cool history. Never been depicted. B, C, Mm -hmm. I, I chose to paint this one a little bit more abstractly, not quite so realistically, because it's kind of an abstract moment in our history. We don't quite know how it fits in. Scholars debate it, what it means, and, uh, we don't, 
quite know how it fits into our narrative of church history, but I painted like God, his head is poking kind of through the heavens because how do you depict the voice of God? And then I painted kind of this yellow swirling fire-ish thing coming down that's going into Joseph and Oliver's hearts as they're praying. And I kind of used, uh, you know, exaggerated perspective lines like Vincent van Gogh did to show kind of like this, you know, kind of heavenly feel of otherworldly feel. So anyway, it's just a fun artistic image to look at uh, visually. Yeah. Well, I think, I think it's so cool because like you said, you don't know what exactly that looks like and, and it's been disputed, but you took a stab at it. Yeah. And I think that that's important. I think that it's important for us to try and to portray these things. Yeah. So if I tried, it would be really bad. Oh, you should try, Anthony, Morgan. So I'm glad you are. Well, no, I should not. Thank you. And I hope I do. I hope other artists paint these images because, again, the more I don't want anybody to think, oh, well, that's the way it was because that's how Anthony Sweat painted it. This is just my interpretation, my my take, my approach. If I painted the same scene, I might paint it differently the next time. And other artists would take different approaches. So I I do hope other artists approach these. So when you are working on a piece like that, how do you, how do you decide how to paint it? Is it, do you spend time researching? Obviously I would think, and then praying about it or what is the process there? You know, I I think we, we have this kind of romantic narrative that artists and musicians and, you know, that things just, fall right out of heaven. You know, we hear the story like, I just woke up and I had this picture right in my mind, or that's more rare than common, kind of like revelation in our own life and inspiration. You have to work at it. You have to try, you have to fail. There's starts and stops, fits and jolts. Most of these images follow that same pattern. I hear something, I think about it, I sketch out a rough idea in my mind about how it could look visually that would be interesting visually and then from there start to try different approaches and do compositional sketches and photograph people and sometimes it comes together really well and sometimes it doesn't it's kind of like life as a whole yeah we had we had rob gardner on this podcast i'm not sure if you're familiar with lamb of god but he talked about how when he was writing that he said you know people seem to have this idea that you know, these amazing compositions come together, you know, they come to somebody in their sleep. Yeah. And he, he said, that's never been my experience. And so I do think it's important for us to realize that sometimes we really have to put in work. Yeah. And even these really incredible things that people do that we maybe think I could never do that. Well, maybe you could never do it. Like I said, stick figures are like as far as it goes for me with art. But I think anything worth doing for the most part is going to take some work. And so thank you for the work that you've put into this book. Oh, thank you. I mean, with everything, with your podcast or whatever great work that the listeners are, or that they're engaged in at home, it will be, you know, it's cliche, but it's true. It will be 99% perspiration. And I can say that because my last name's Sweat. Um, uh, and it w- then the 1% inspiration pops through and we're so grateful when, when heaven does seem to part and the answer does seem to come and 
while a lot of these images, there was just a lot of work. There's just no way around it. There was a lot of work. I would be remiss if I also didn't say that there were, there were times when I did feel heaven kind of settle on me and, and I felt like I was, you know, being blessed or helped to produce an important image. How long did it take you to create all of these paintings? You know, some, some of them were quick. Some of them are more um, illustrative scenes, like maybe something like the burning of the Nauvoo Expositor, for example, which is a scene that, you know, we know that Joseph Smith was martyred. A lot of people don't know why Joseph Smith was arrested and taken to Carthage jail. And he was arrested for destruction of property and inciting a riot because as mayor, he ordered the sheriff to destroy a printing press that was printing negative things about him in Nauvoo. And so that's what led to his arrest and being taken to Carthage. So that painting I did just in a day or two. It's more illustrative. It's called The Destruction of the Nauvoo Expositor and shows them burning the press out in the streets. Uh, which is what the sources say happened. Other images literally took months and months of work, like my painting of the Book of Mormon translation of Joseph using a hat. Which I like that one a lot. Thank you. I did. That was the first image that kicked off this series. I painted that back in 2013, 2014. And uh, I may have been maybe the first Latter-day Saint artist to try to faithfully depict that scene. And I wanted to do it right, and I wanted to do it well. And that one took a few months. Uh, same with uh, images like uh, the Release Society Healing or the Ordination of Q. Walker Lewis or another one, Michael Detecting the Devil on the Banks of the Susquehanna River, um, which is an important historical scene. You know, one's more... What, what, wait, what's that one about? So that's just another... You, you can't just tease it like that, <laughs> I can't. Now, see, go pick up the book and take a look at the image. So there's this really interesting line in scripture where Joseph says that one time the devil tried to deceive, tried to appear as an angel of light on the banks of the Susquehanna and deceive Joseph Smith. And then Michael, who Joseph says is Adam, appears and gives Joseph Smith keys, to use Joseph's words, to detect true messengers of God from false messengers of God. And that becomes an important Latter-day Saint teaching that was is later uh, makes its way into some of the teachings had in the Latter-day Saint temple. So, again, really important historical and doctrinal images that have just never been depicted. So interesting. I want to come back to something that you said really quickly, because I cannot be the only one thinking this. Why is it a positive thing? For us, and how can we faithfully approach a story like Joseph Smith burning that printing press? That's a great question. Can I tell another story of a painting that's in there? Please. So, President Kimball gave a landmark talk on the gospel, his vision of the gospel and the arts. And it was basically a challenge to artists to faithfully portray the great moments of the restoration in epic artistic scenes, paintings and, and film. And, and I'm so grateful for the women and men in our history who have attempted to fulfill that vision. But one thing that I, one part of it that we've kind of overlooked is president Kimball talked about not only the majestic parts of the restoration, but he also said we should depict 
the apostasies, the difficulties. He called them the revolutions and counter-revolutions of the restoration as well. We kind of are, we like art that is heroic and, and triumphant, but we kind of shy away from art that deals with difficulty or ambiguity. And um, until we can embrace things like that, I don't think we can really get a handle on the, the, the way the Lord is working in the restoration as a whole. If we think it's always victories and triumphant and without problem, then we get a false narrative in our mind. And then when things get messy for us, we think, we think well, then God's why not with God me. Why, why? This isn't the way it happened for every other inspired person. And the reality is, no, it is how it happened. Like, I, I'm not going to rap on your podcast right now, but uh, using an American history example, the, the great artist John Trumbull painted the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And when John, but we all want you to rap Hamilton. Okay, I right just now. might. Um, <laughs> and when John Adams heard that Trumbull was going to paint it, he said, "Please don't remake history of this happy scene." He basically said, "You know, show the fights and the arguments. There, the child was born," is what Adams says to Trumbull. There, the revolution commenced, and he said, "Let not our posterity be deluded." by pretenses under graphical license. And so when Hamilton the Musical came out, there's a song that's in the mixtape album that the Roots sing, and it's called No John Trumbull. And it says, uh, you ever seen a painting by John Trumbull, founding fathers all in a line, looking all humble, patiently waiting to sign a declaration, no sign of disagreement, not even one grumble. And then it says, the reality is messier and richer, kids. The reality is not a pretty picture, kids. Every cabinet meeting, a full-on rumble. What you're about to see is no John Trumbull. And and uh, dun, 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 you can put the, the beat behind that on the podcast. I'm, I'm also just going to take a moment. That was from memory. I wasn't reading anything. Um, the crowd is like... <sighs> <laughs> but why that's important to give a long answer Take, for example, one of the paintings in here that is not a mantelpiece painting, meaning you likely do not want to hang this up in your living room, shows Joseph Smith and Emma in front of a fireplace late at night. And Emma is holding, uh, in this low-lit scene, Emma is holding the revelation on plural marriage. And Joseph, I painted Joseph sitting in a chair, kind of uncomfortably looking away from her. And the painting is called Purgatory, because in the historical record, Joseph and Emma, understandably so, they could not reconcile the revelation on plural marriage. It put a rift in their marriage that I'm not sure ever was fully healed. Um, They deeply loved each other. Uh, Without any question, they deeply loved each other, but they couldn't reconcile this. Joseph writes in his journal that for about three days, he was at home he and Emma arguing over this revelation. And on the third day, his scribe writes in a shorthand that the last three days had been hell or purgatory for he and Emma. Now, the reason why that's important, to me, it's not a lesson about plural marriage. I wanted to include that painting so that you could understand the difficulty that people sometimes have when they're trying to implement revelation, the difficulty that 
about maybe give some insight into why Emma Smith did not come west and follow Brigham Young because Emma just couldn't quite. I, I hear people sometimes say, "Well, the reason why Emma didn't come west was because she was exhausted and tired and had been through too much." That may be the case, but I'm not sure I subscribe to that narrative. Mary Fielding also had her husband Hiram murdered, and she came west. the The difficulty was plural marriage, and Emma knew that the Quorum of the Twelve as they continue to lead the church, that they, they were practicing it and they would likely continue the practice. So if, if, we, if we look at paintings like the destruction of the Nauvoo Expositor, Joseph and Emma struggling over plural marriage, or if I can just tell one more story, I did a little painting. You can tell as many stories as you okay. want. Okay. There's a great painting when Joseph gets into a fist fight with his little brother, William. They were at a debate and Joseph censured William, his little brother. And like a lot of families, they had some sibling rivalries. You know, we love our siblings, but sometimes we just have difficulties with our siblings. And William Smith became so enraged that he jumped up and Joseph saw that William was going to attack him. And Joseph tried to take his coat off to fight him, but couldn't get his coat off. And William Smith beat the tar out of Joseph Smith. Like so much so that for the next day, Joseph was in bed all day and couldn't get up without help. And for the next number of weeks, Joseph and William are, their relationship is ruined as anybody's would be who got into an actual physical altercation with their sibling. And it takes a family intervention a few weeks later with Joseph's father, Martin Harris. They have a family intervention where they bring Joseph and William together in person Both of them confess their faults. Both of them admit where they were wrong. They freely forgive each other. Joseph writes, the tears flowed fast and the spirit of reconciliation and forgiveness uh, was was over all of us. Well, that's beautiful because that's, that's life. And if that ruins somebody's image of the prophet, I might be so bold as to say, then maybe you don't really know the prophet. And maybe you need, and I need to get to know Joseph Smith, not just as a prophet, but as a person. And all these other people also, because it helps us see that God is working through regular people who are doing great work, but they're still struggling with difficulties. And if he can work through them in their imperfections and their struggles, then he can work with me and he can work with you in, in our imperfections and our struggles. That's why I think scenes like this are important. And that's how I hope a viewer approaches some of these non-mantelpiece images that I painted and illustrated in the book. I could not agree more. I love that. I feel like you've kind of touched on this, but how was your testimony personally of the truthfulness of the restored gospel strengthened as you worked on this book? Yeah, that is a great question. It definitely was. You know, I wrote in the introduction that faith is a choice. In today's information age, ignorance is not. And so I hope that as people look at these, I painted, there's 25 paintings in here from things going from Joseph finding a seer stone when he's young, when he's a teenager, to, you know, angels ministering to Joseph, delivering priesthood keys like Raphael. Who's, who's the angel Raphael? I don't know. I'll give you a million dollars if you know. I wish I knew. I wish I, I knew. Don't. We just have this subtle reference to it, but we don't quite know what power Raphael restored. My hope is that, like I said, faith is a choice. And 
faith is a gift. And uh, what I hope when people look at these scenes and what happened to me as I researched and wrote and painted them was my faith was strengthened. I saw God work with people line upon line, precept upon precept. I saw the Lord expand my understanding to see things more broadly. You know, Joseph Smith one time said, Mormonism is truth. And I love that because truth, the scriptures say that truth is a knowledge of things as they really are, not as we wish they were. And truth is a knowledge of things as they are, as they were, and as they are to come. And so it, it can't just be the things that, that we hope are true. It also has to be the things that really are and really were. And as I learned these things and painted them, I feel like my mind expanded and I got a better feel for that phrase of Mormonism is truth. Let's embrace all good, all truth. Let's learn, let's grow line upon line, precept upon precept. Let's maybe alter some ideas we have that may not hold up under the test of time, that, that need to be rearranged or remodeled. Let's tackle difficult issues and celebrate the glorious achievements. And that's what uh, painting and writing, repicturing the Restoration did for me. It, it deeply and greatly strengthened my faith in the Restoration. Thank you so much, Anthony. Well, we have reached our final question. Thank you so much for sharing so many. I think hopefully people are as excited. I, like I said, I got like a few images in and I read all of the text at the beginning, but I'm excited to totally dig into this book. But in conclusion, what does it mean to you to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Uh, I love that question that you end this podcast on. And I knew you'd ask that one. And so as I thought about it, I've, to me, what it means to be all in and the gospel means to be a consecrated saint. Uh, I think that living the law of consecration is what God is trying to get us all to do. And by that, I don't want us to get confused with some economic system. By consecration, I'm using the simple definition that we dedicate our time that we have we dedicate our talents and we dedicate any means or abilities we have to try to build up the kingdom of God and help the Lord's will be done on this earth like it is done in heaven. And uh, the beauty of that is, like with this project, as I take my time and talents and means and take them to the Lord and say, Lord, what is it that you'd have me do with my time, talents, and means? Uh, he directs me in my own small little sphere and in my own small stewardship. And I am confident he can direct every one of your listeners that if they will take that question to the Lord, that he'll also direct them about how they can use their great gifts and their opportunities to help build the kingdom. So to me, that's, if I had to summarize what it means to be all in, it's to be a consecrated saint in that way trying to use the great gifts that God has given us on this earth and the great opportunities that are ours to do his will and build his kingdom to bless his children. Thank you so much, Anthony. It's been a delight to be with you. And thank you so much for all your work on this book and, and many others. So thanks. Thank you so much. 
A huge thank you to Anthony Sweat for joining us on today's episode. You can find Repicturing the Restoration on DeseretBook.com. A big thanks to Derek Campbell of Mix It Six Studios for his help with this and every episode. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>